This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Psalm 93 The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. I think a lot of people will hear that and go, yeah, that sounds religious. (laughs) God is great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't think most people know how to process all that information because it sounds like it's almost like the Quran just coming statement after statement with no central coherence to it. So when you when you read this or you hear this Psalm ninety three, what are the first organizing features uh, that that you all see? For me, immediately, I notice metaphors. And as a literary minded reader, I'm struck in the first line by the fact that the Lord is robed. That's repeated, so that stands out to me. And I'm thinking, of course. God is not human like us, so robed is something familiar to a human that is trying to make this God that is difficult to imagine more imaginable or knowable to me in some way. But for me, my context as, you know, a modern American reader, I mean, being robed is not a sign of rule to me. Because I don't live in a land with with a king, and so I'm wondering for you all. I mean, Chip, as a, as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, when you see robed, I mean, how does robe signify here? Yeah, I mean, we could think about robe as just putting on clothes. Like, there's just a very basic sort of human like identification there, right? So I, you know, the old saying, we all just put one uh, one pant leg on at mm-hmm. a time, right? which ironically is not true, particularly in this instance, because they're not wearing pants. And so (laughs) at at some level, you know, these sort of like things that we think that we know just about human existence actually aren't even true for our own time, might as well for hundreds and thousands of years ago. And so, yes, so so robe here obviously has a very sort of like familiar sense to it. But it also has this distancing sense because what is what does robed in majesty mean? And then how does that connect with the Lord reigns, the very first two words, three words in English of this psalm, right? What what is it about reigning or ruling or the Lord as king that equals being robed in majesty? Right. So this is this is immediately I think we're faced with the question that, that Drew brought up, which is this this isn't as familiar as I think. It might sound pretty, it might sound religious, it might sound like something that I should like, I should want to like, but when it comes right down to it, do I even understand the very base metaphor of this first verse? Might as well the rest of it with the mountains and the seas and everything else. 
So he's robed in majesty, and this seems kind of obvious enough. He's majestic, he's armed with strength. Uh, this world is established, it's firm and secure. Um, Chip, Drew, take us a little bit like behind these images. I mean, how for the psalmist would the robe signify? I mean, is this automatically kingly in some way? Or is it just kind of like the everyday everyone pulls their robe on one arm at a time? Chip, I'm interested to hear you explain kind of, again, There, there's a list of information here. I think that's one way you could look at this. Uh, or somebody just thinking in their head, I wanted to say a poem about God, and I'm just going to say these things that feel good and comforting to me, which obviously there's a sense of comfort here that comes from this. Or that it might also be terror, depending on which psalm we're talking about, that's meant to be rot. Um, but the actual structure of why, why is it laid out this way, right? The Lord reigns, he's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. I mean, I think some people, if you read the Psalms uh, regularly, that feels very psalmy to us, but it's actually a particular form of poetry that does a particular form of work. Is that correct? That's right. And in fact, it sounds familiar, but in some ways, uh, this series of maybe four clauses, we might think of it, right? Two sentences, four clauses, depending on how your punctuation works in your English Bible. It's pretty, it's pretty fast. It moves along quickly. Like I said, it's two words in Hebrew, two words followed by two words, followed by two words, followed by two words. In English, you kind of get that sense. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. He is robed in majesty. The Lord's right, robe of majesty, then armed with strength or girded with strength, right? So, so you have this sort of repetition that happens, and then right in the middle of this repetition, you see. So you have these four clauses in this middle of this repetition. You see this word that Matt mentioned, robed, right? It's repeated twice, both in English and Hebrew. The translator does a great job of bringing that across, and so we could see this as a type of chiasm, right? Where, and in fact, in Hebrew, the two words, the word for robed. Is just a single word. The verb in English is isro, but it's a single word in Hebrew. And notice that it's exactly at the middle of the thing. And then it's repeated twice. Levesh, levesh. And so it's very interesting how, how like it, it all centers on that robe mentality, going into talking about robe and coming out talking about robe. So, so the reigning is ruling to robe and the robe is, is moving to strength and being girded. So, um, so there, there actually is a particular movement inward and outward here at the beginning. Uh, I know what a lot of people are thinking right now. They're like thinking, "Oh, what did I click on here? Why, 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 does, <laughs> why does this matter at all?" Um, I guess uh, the question, and referring back to the last conversation we had on this podcast, Matt, um, is what are they trying to do by saying it this way? Like, what's the goal? Rather than, I mean, I think a lot of people, look, I was in a charismatic church for a long time. I think a lot of people just think of these as like exuberant, ecstatic, like you just keep saying great things about God and that's somehow exalting his name or something like that. But I have a feeling that that's not what's going on. Yeah. In fact, the structure is extremely um, stylized. It's very artistic and it's the arrangement is key. And that's the argument that we kind of made, Drew, you and me together in that last podcast where we talked about how the form and the structure, the arrangement of the words is integral to the meaning, that the meaning can't simply be abstracted. Like, oh, I could paraphrase this by saying, oh, God is great. That's what the psalm means. In fact, it means so much more than that. And the rhythm and the pace that Chip is talking about in some way factor into 
that meaning. So, I mean, Chip, if we were to think about how it is so fast-paced, how this repetition builds in each of the verses towards some type of end, like firm and secure at the end of verse one, or you are from all eternity at verse two, and then in the, the next two verses, working towards, you know, the Lord on high is mighty. Can Could we start to think about a way that that kind of pacing and repetition could affect our interpretation of these, these ideas and relations to God? Yeah, we almost set it up. I, I think of some passages, other passages in Exodus and elsewhere, where we have these like these like very like succinct statements about who God is. Right? Uh, God is merciful. God is kind. God is long suffering. Right? And, and it, this psalm almost begins in that fashion, like this very sort of staccato, sort of quick. Right? We maybe think of a, think of a rapper who like runs through a bunch of like uh, lyrics really really fast, and you almost don't even catch it all. It's so quick, hmm. but yet he's building or she's building up a, a sort of network of ideas kind of a, around this idea of God being robed, God being enthroned, God being surrounded by, by something mysterious and majestic and strong, right? I, I think for me, like the, the immediate connection I make when I read this as, as a scholar who re, who's reading the Hebrew Bible kind of all together and in canonical sort of sense, I, I think of Sinai. Right? I think mm-hmm. of the Lord descending on the mountain, which is then clouded and shrouded, right? And, and so he is he is reigning. He's descended upon his throne, which is this mountain, which is going to be mentioned later in the psalm, of course. And and that information is just like almost too much to handle, right? Yeah, almost. it overwhelms, right? And that, yeah. that's part of the rhythm and the pace. It is like you're being black. And like the, the analogy to rap lyrics that are moving so quickly is perfect because you're almost just the idea there is that the, the singer is going to overwhelm you with the skill that they have with a facility with language. And that's the thing here. And, and instead of simply being overwhelmed by the artistry, the artistry is embodying that overwhelming power and majesty of God. So that as you experience that staccato, that blast, that whatever, that repetition, you are being overwhelmed not simply with language, but also with like the God of language. Yeah, I think this, I'm glad we made this turn to the overwhelming part because uh, I've, I've read some research in Song of Songs um, where it's like, why so much, for lack of a better word, lewdness, right? Why, why, why so much wink, wink, nod, nod, double entendre everywhere you go, right? Um, in this sense that, the question becomes, okay, when you overwhelm somebody, I, I can only, I don't know why I have Macklemore stuck in my head, but um, he, he will do this. Uh, his song Wings, which I always use in my hermeneutics classes, um, he, he will do this. He'll just go on and on and on and on. Uh, but the question is, okay, well, like, what are you left with? What does that do to you cognitively um, when you've received line after line after line? You see some artistry. You see some poetic movement there. You feel the, the movement in and out. Okay, we shift to topic. But what does that leave you with? Like, how does that work on us? Because I think most of us are going to say, look, it's like a sermon in, in contrast here. It has point one, which is logically connected to point two, which is logically connected <laughs> to point three, and therefore conclusion, and therefore we do X, Y, and Z, and, and we're good. We wrap it up and leave. And this doesn't seem to be doing that. No, I, I, in fact, I think that overwhelming sense is exactly what this psalm is doing. As we look to verses three and four, Right, we have this this turn towards the sea and the sea's voice, right, and then the thunder, right, and 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 it's sort of this cascading, this this like overwhelming sense, right. You've, we've all been to the ocean, or maybe we 
you know, I don't know, maybe we turn the ocean sounds on our, you know, help us sleep, right? And, and so, like, the whole point of that is that the, the ocean sound drowns out everything else, right? It's mm-hmm. so overwhelming that, that it just cannot be ignored. And the psalmist, I, I think here, is just connecting these things and saying that the, that the Lord's enveloping sense, his enveloping robe, his enveloping strength, his majesty is like the sea, that, that has this this pounding voice, this overwhelming voice. Hmm. And, and so I think it is actually interesting, connected to reality in such a way. You know, hmm. the, so the psalmist is saying, okay, what else in life is overwhelming, is an overwhelming hmm. force? And that is the sea. So and we I, go from this perhaps illusion with the Lord being robed in majesty, almost like he's robed or enshrouded in the clouds on Sinai, right? So like the mountain down to the depths of of the sea. And what stuck out to me as someone, you know, who doesn't have facility with the Hebrew, but who is paying attention to like repetition and these other artistic factors is in verse three, you have, you know, the seas have lifted up, Lord. And it doesn't tell us what they've lifted up. The second part of the verse, the seas have lifted up what? Their voice. The third part, the seas have lifted up their pounding waves. So each time it kind of builds in intensity in this way that Chip was just talking about. And what's beautiful about that to me is that the language itself, the arrangement of the words embodies this sense of progression and building and kind of compounding and exponentially kind of growing sense of being overwhelmed. And not only from the highest height, but now down to the depths. And this was something I, I asked Chip about because when I saw this, I thought, well, do, okay, so then do the seas have some type of connection to like Sheol? You go from the heights to the, to the depths. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So you have this kind of juxtaposition between the depths of the sea and the heights of the Lord. So whether we're talking about the glory of Sinai or the, or the depths of the grave, the Lord is mighty in both cases. And it it crescendos, like all this language about the seas, it crescendos at the Lord is mighty. And I think, you know, we, 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 I feel obligated to point out that uh, the Mediterranean basin, everybody's basically terrified of the sea, right? It's, it's, it's a scary place. Even the Sea of Galilee, as we see in the Gospels, becomes a place of terror in the wrong conditions, right? And it almost, you almost can't help but hear this psalm echoing into certain scenes in the Gospels, right? Who is this that even the seas and the winds obey his voice, yeah. you know, as the God, as the, the well, where do they throw Jonah when they're trying to get rid of him and seek the, and seek the favor of this God, they throw him into the sea. Right. And where does Jonah try to escape to, right. uh, to get away from the surety right. of the throne of God, right? It, it is, is the ocean. You know, it's only a modern person with modern technology who isn't afraid of the ocean. It's sort of like, <laughs> we have to like be out. We like yeah. use the ocean for like, uh, you're like going for on a leisure. cruise. It's vacation. Yeah. <laughs> I will say though, when I was 18 years old, I was in the military and we took a ferry from Denmark to Norway with all our equipment, like a big enough that we could carry 27 army trucks or whatever. And, uh, we got out in the middle of that North sea and those, apparently it was just an everyday occurrence, but I thought we were all going to die. Uh, cause those waves started hitting the boat and I 
had a come, I wasn't a Christian at that point, but I had a small coming to Jesus moment. Like, (laughs) wow, this whole big ship could go down right here in the middle of this dark water and nobody would ever find us, you know? And so there, I think there is anybody who's actually out, been out on the sea in the, in the worst of its temperament, uh, probably has some palpable access to this. Yeah. And I I think that's, that's kind of the point, right? Is that the Lord provides surety, a firm structure, uh, excuse me, a firm, uh, a firm grasp on reality, even in the midst of the most dangerous Mm -hmm. moment of our lives. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so, and I think that's what the psalmist is trying to bring across in in, in a really real way to, to the listeners of this crescendoing, you know, you think the sea is mighty. Well, guess right. What? That's nothing compared to Yahweh. Mm. Yeah, this literal source of terror and this metaphorical or figurative source of terror, the sea, is not only subject to to God, but something that Chip pointed out to me was that it lists off its voice in praise to God. So it's not only subjected to him, it also bows to God. Right. That's the great reversal here. Right. Is that in in verse three where you have this like sometimes literary scholars will call this a staircase or biblical mm. scholar. Right. You're just kind of building in three lines like three is, is odd. Right. Normally it's two right, or four. Right. And so it's, it's sort of this ad, you, you have the same thing over and over again with an addition of one item each time. Right. And so you can see it as, as sort of stepping up. And, and Matt even pointed out to me that that in the in the NIV that we're reading here, even the typography of the word sort of does that. And that it creates a staircase at the end of the lines, which is kind of cool to really? think about. Okay. Um, but but like, it, you know, it says the sea is lifted up like, well, OK, so is the sea lifted up to destroy us? Is mm-hmm. the sea lifted up? Like in what way is, is it being lifted up? And then in the second line, we hear, oh, no, it's the voice or the sound of the sea, which, which again, is, is that fearsome thing. But what we now think, oh, wait a second, the, the, we catch the metaphor because now it's not just lifting up, something rising, but it's a voice rising. Oh, wait a second, voice rise in English as well means to raise our voice. We say that as praise, right? right? And so the very thing that's fearsome, the pounding waves there in the last line, the very thing that's fearsome is actually the thing that brings it brings about glory and brings about the strength of Yahweh, which is really a reversal of this uh, of this idea, the fear idea, right? The fear fear goes from being the thing I'm afraid to die right. to being the I'm afraid in a good way of Yahweh, right? Yeah. Terrified of Him. There's a little ambiguity there. I, I feel obligated again to say, uh, if you look, if you trace out the megalophone language in the New Testament uh, and the equivalent of cholim in, in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You certainly see raising voices can be praise. It can also be like they're getting ready to destroy, you know, the place. Yeah, that's uh, a great point. So, yeah. so there really this is, is kind of like which way is it going to go, right? Right. Yeah, well, this yeah. is what poetic language is so good at. I mean, I think, Drew, the, the ambiguity is part of the point here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Chip pointed this out to me in an earlier conversation about uh, the first couple of verses as well, that the robed in majesty and uh, when we go back to Sinai, you know, there's both adoration and and fear here Mm -hmm. you know there's ambiguity around this notion of lifting up voices and i think that that's really important when you're coming to the psalms because it's so easy yeah and kind of like our modern american maybe romanticized view of of poetry as this kind of very expressionistic art form in which i'm just kind of exuding or expressing this inner truth that's inside of me uh, which is a really modern way of thinking about the poem but rather instead, we can't just paraphrase it or translate it into, oh, well, this is what it's really saying about God in the singular, simplified, reductive sense. When we get to the end, 
What we know about God is extremely finite and limited. He's so beyond what we can imagine. And so, yeah, on the one hand, there is this sense of fear in a healthy way, like respect way. And maybe on the other hand, a sense of fear in like, I'm scared uh, kind of way. And both of those are true at the same time. It doesn't resolve. Mm. There's not neat and tidy closure, I think. But that's part of the point is to kind of hold us in uncertainties to keep us with the thought, to keep us meditating on it longer and longer rather than just saying, okay, I got this up. Let's tie it up and go on to 94. Right. I, I, uh, I want to come back to that point you just made, but I, I do want to get to this very last line of the psalm which I think for most people is just going to be a very surprising, like, oh, that was an interesting turn at the end, right? Because we're getting to this power and might and rain and uh, this God in the heavens kind of being depicted as coming down and and having all of this totalitarian control. Um, and then um, I, I'm reading the ESV here. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness uh, befits your house. That's a nice way of saying it. Uh, oh, Yahweh forevermore. Um where where do you guys see decrees and holiness? Like, ho- help us think through how holiness and God's decrees and the trustworthiness fit in here, just to finish the loop, because I think there is some logic here. Yeah, I think my take on Matt and I talked about this line as well a bit, and you know, it does. It sort of sticks out. If um, if I think for just a normal reader, they would say, well, how does this fit statutes and laws? Okay. Okay. That Bible's always talking about that. Right. Okay. So you got to throw in at the end, you know, right, you got to right. always come back to that. Right. Yeah. It's rules. Like, God's about rules. God's about <laughs> rules, you know, and give me your money. Right. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's like the sales pitch, you know, we know we got to come in. So it's at the end. It's only the last line. We're good. You know, we're right. good. But, but I think the more, the more we uh, enter into sort of the mindset, I mentioned Sinai earlier, and I, and I think there's a connection here. I, I think, you know, we see the Lord who is about, you know, who, who does these displays, right? Who, who is a visual God, right? Who, who brings about uh, his truth in these ways and ultimately dwells with his people. And if you think about this word for statues, or I, I forget what you said, the yes, it's decrees, but it's I just noticed it's edetika, right? Exactly, yeah, it's yeah. not the normal word for Torah or right. for instruction or or um, it's both. It's yeah, command. Yeah. It's not the. It, it's a different word. It's it's the word that it has to do with testimony. It has to right, do with covenant, right? right? It's it's the word used for the the tabernacle of the covenant, right? And so I think in many ways what we're seeing here at the end is a tie back into the Lord's presence, but his presence in the tabernacle, mm. his presence in the temple. Uh, and, and I think, again, we see that with the house reference, the dwelling place reference here. And so remembering that the surety of God right, is not just his big, great thunder, not just his robing, but also his presence with his people in his temple. Hmm. Yeah, even someone like me who does not pick up on you know the distinctiveness of that word when I'm reading it here, your statutes, Lord, stand firm. It does feel like a weird twist at, at first, but then you start to think this Lord who reigns on high, this Lord who controls the depths as well, that they sing out praise to him, his statutes or his words, his His decrees, those things are as firm as his rule over this. So if he said this, then that's what it is. You know, and when when Chip said to me, yeah, there's like this testimony or almost like covenantal implications here that really made things click for me because then it made me think, yeah, the same power that rules this world has given its word, 
has given his word to his people. And so that is as firm as all of those other kinds of rules. Yeah, it may be nitpicky, but I, I actually, to me, it loses a little something when you throw it into that. For most people, they hear decrees and statutes, and uh, they. I think a lot of people shut down and go, "Oh, that's like Pharisee land right over there." Um, and you know, the the idea of his and even testimony. It's his testimony, and then you have the word for faithfulness, uh, imuna, uh, and and then very right. This very very uh, true, trustworthy, high fidelity testimony. It really is not talking about, hey, God told you a story and it's it's legit. It's really saying God over time and circumstances has kept his word and done his things. Yeah. Um, and this is what is actually worth putting our, our, our trust in. Um, and, and that's exactly what you need to hear at times in your life, right? When you, when you hear the news of like cabal falling, right? You hear the news of the earthquake in Haiti. Mm-hmm. You hear the news of, of like, ex, you know, this, the, the rampant, uh, proliferation of COVID cases, you know, you, you're, I mean, wh- what do you do as a human in that moment? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, how, and how are we sure that God is still there, right? On his throne, right? It seems like that's the thing that we want to question. And that's exactly the moment that a Psalm like this can overwhelm us with, with his, with his mighty power, right? Yeah. No, these other things aren't the most powerful thing. The Taliban's not the most powerful thing. Right, but God is the most powerful thing. So, what you just said there, I'm, this is like I just read that this morning in a book by Jacob Onyumbe um, on Nahum, uh, on the book of Nahum, and he's talking about in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and putting. His experiences in the war, in the wars, and the atrocities there, and, and this, he says exactly this: those people, you know, they're great. The greatest problem they will cite is that people can just come into their village and rape and torture and kill, and there's no repercussion. There's no government to come and save. Mm. And one of the things they need to know um, is that above all of this unmarshalling of law, this chaos, that there really is a God who's in control, uh, even if they can't presently see it. And, which was a little bit shocking because it sounds a lot like, forgive me for saying this, but kind of like youth groupy. Like I know you can't see God, but He really is there, yeah. and you just need to trust Him. But it really, you know, I'm at the end of this book. That is not the level we're talking about. He's talking about when people no. have experienced profound traumas. Like this is a, ba- it's like you need to know your mother loves you at the end of the day. Like this is basic stuff people need to know in order to just function. Yeah, you need well, to be held, right? You need yeah. to be held in these moments, right? Yeah, and, that's and what I. He's doing. Sorry, Chip. And that's why I think it's important that this is said in a poem, in a song, because it invokes all of these experiences that people would have had, you know, from from fear of the depths to memories of how their ancestors and forefathers were brought out uh, to out of Egypt to Sinai. I mean, it, it, it invokes all these things and the emotions and the feelings that go along with them. So mm-hmm. that by the time you get to the end, it's like, look in the face, like you guys are both just saying, in the face of all of this, God's word is still firm. We've seen it over time. And so, yeah, it's not uh, kind of this youth groupy, you know, God is in control in some simplistic sense. It's what you said, Drew, you know, over time and experience and, and across huge swaths of geography and space, mm-hmm. God has been who he said he would be from the highest heights to the lowest depths. And it's going to be that way. And I like the NIV here at the end for endless days. Hmm. 
I don't know what the Hebrew says there. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. Well, I actually... Uh, yeah, long of days, interesting. Yeah, huh? yeah I was going to say not long, not forever, right. but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's er- earlier you get the idea of forever, but here yeah. it's more like this length of days, this idea of, the, you know, which does have to do with longevity as yeah. well. But I, I think it, just to tie back into your guys' point, I, I, I think that the, the modern Western myth is that if I just cognitively assent to God's mightiness, that somehow I therefore will act and be in a certain way that's transformative. And, yeah. and what we know from the witness of the ancestors and what we know from the witness of the world is that it doesn't, it's not just merely about cognitive ascent. It's about the rehearsal of those truths in our lives. I mean, just imagine if this is allusion to Sinai, which I'm open to other ideas here, but if this is illusion, the very generation that sees the Lord come down in visible fashion on Sinai, that same generation is the generation that just very a few uh, days later decides to run right. away from him. Right. You know, and so, and so if it's just about seeing, right, if it's just about cognitive ascent, then, then I mean, we just have so many problems. But it's got to be about more. And that's what the poem does for us, is it helps us rehearse the truth of this in our lives, and especially in those times that, that life is, is particularly difficult. Yeah, I, I want to drag this into my area of expertise. Well, I, I don't know if do. I'm an expert, but <laughs> I mean, this is where I bring in Sukkot. And it's it's the one in Leviticus 23 where it says, you know, you shall live in shacks or booths or whatever for seven days so that your children may know that when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, I made you live in shacks. Um, and you say, like, look, if it's about cognitive ascent, if it's just about knowing the fact that, then you don't need the seven days in a booth. You don't need to build the booth. You don't need to do There's something about living in that booth for seven days that actually allows you to see that bit of information uh, in, in a new way or a way that it needs to be seen in order to be God's people and proliferate. And the, like the practice of building actually sets you up to yes. be able to do that, right? Yeah. And then, of course, in those, in, those, uh, in those rituals, you're also seeing Psalms along with it, at least right, traditionally. Right, right. Do that, right? I don't know. Which, do you remember what Psalms connect with Sukkot in this? I do or? not. Um, okay. I, I wish I knew those off the top of my head. But even this one, I think... I'm always beaten up on the church. It's because I love her so much, but uh, uh, I do believe in the church, but there is this kind of, you know, think about your average evangelical white church and I'll pick on those people because I know them best. Um, How much have they prepared and rehearsed, not when they were in misery, not when they were questioning God's goodness or his presence, Mm -hmm. but when they, when they were doing just fine, how much were they rehearsing these songs so that when they hit those times they could say like okay now we knew this was coming right how much is how much is the full poetic breadth of of scripture actually in some ways emotional preparation and giving you the words and the feelings when you hit those times and i think we kind of run to them maybe we, maybe we don't even run to them i think actually when we hit hard times then sometimes we try to run to the other spots that are like no everything's good it's cool like <laughs> jesus is lovely and um so I do wonder how much of this is emotional preparation. To 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 reiterate what you guys have said, I want you to say it again because I think there's something again to drag sermons into this. You could say, you know, I didn't go to church today, but my family did, right? And they come home and they say, "What was the sermon about?" And they could say, "Oh, you know, like that we shouldn't be ashamed of who God made us to be, or something, whatever the the proposition was that we're preaching." Um, and at some point we have to ask, well, is that the same thing? Like getting that two sentence summary, is that the same thing as sitting through the sermon? 
Um, or is there some transformative experience that you can have by the sermon? Now people, people, I have lots of thoughts about sermons and what they can do and can't do and all that stuff. But, um, I think this point that you guys have been making that it's actually in time, space and body. And we haven't even talked about community, that it's multiple people together sharing these words, um, that the process you know, to get to Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to work the process for the process to work, right? Um, and I think that's the part that we, if we reduce poetry to fluffy ex- external expression of internal ideas, there's no reason whatsoever for me to like sit around with somebody and read this, read this out loud with them, right? I'm um, So in light of that, I would love, you guys work at a seminary, uh, so you train future pastors. What's the kind of advice you like the practical advice you give to future pastors and leaders in the church on how to use the poetry of scripture in their ministry? But throw a, one thing, a simple yeah, question sorry, out there. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, it's good. Um, one thing teaching primarily the, the college students, many of whom have their eyes set on seminary and working in that direction is I am always encouraging my students to read aloud, read aloud, mm. read aloud. Yeah. It's, and it's something Chip and I have talked about a lot. In fact, I, the afterword to my Enjoying the Bible book is called uh, Reading Aloud, and I wrote it because Chip told me I should. Hmm. <laughs> He's <laughs> um, that kind of a power I have in this relationship. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> is like that. And so I encourage them to read aloud because – one, it slows them down. Mm. Two, um, reading aloud is is going to force you to hear the language, to listen to what you are saying. And then also it's a way of kind of saying aloud the words that others have said, even if you're completely alone. Mm. And so whenever you're reading aloud, there is, even when you're kind of uh, by yourself, there is this kind of communal remembrance that's happening even just kind of by muscle memory, that this is the thing that we do when we're together. Hmm. So even if I'm alone, I'm never really reading this text as if I'm the only one that matters. And so reading aloud is one of the most practical things that I encourage my students to do both alone and in community. Oh, that's great. Um, I wonder about uh, a practice I've adopted recently is reading aloud uh, in in a sermon or some kind of teaching, then kind of exploring a little bit and then reading it again aloud and then exploring a little bit more and then reading it again aloud, that kind of returning to the text because you see different things as you, you know, I think we, again, the cognitive ascent that you're just getting facts here. I think we sometimes think if we just read it right before the sermon that everybody's got it holding it. You know, I've been thinking about this passage all week long. Sure, I'll read it 30 seconds before I preach and everybody can just suspend that information in their head while I exegete it. Um, but that people need this kind of constant contact with the text. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think oh, just, ahead, to, just to echo that a little bit farther, I, I think I mean, we believe in a word which created the universe, hmm. right? A spoken word that created a universe. So, so there is something about cognitive ascent to who God is, his might, his strength, his majesty. There, there's absolutely like a cognitive side of that, a recognition of the character of God. But we also have to realize that just as God said, let there be light and there was light, so too does he say, read these words Hmm. in community, by yourself, uh, to one another. And in doing that, you're creating 
a new world, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we've lost that, right? We, we know it at some level. Like we know that words, you know, sticks and stones, you know, <laughs> that, right. that's not really true, right? Words, words do have the tendency to hurt and to harm, right? They create reality. They create new worlds, new universes. And how much more will we want to repeat the words of the psalmist meditating on about who God is and, and the very act of speaking this, uh, creates in us and through us and in the world around us the the truthfulness of what we're what we're hearing and doing. It's transforming us as we hear, you know. And and I think for me, as I speak with future pastors and missionaries and others, I need to remind them that ultimately the people are coming to service. They're coming not to hear your words, mm-hmm. but to hear the words of the Lord. And, and so how much more, if, 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 we're, if we're spending all our time using our words and we're never using the words of scripture, then I, I think we, we've misunderstood who the people have come to hear from. And I, I would hope in our best moments that our sermons, you know, echo the words and explain the words. And we need to do that. There's good biblical reasons to do that. Think of Ezra mm-hmm. or others, right, of, of like explaining what's being said, because sometimes it's very hard to understand. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the power is in the creative words of the Lord. And, and so we need not to, to, to shorten that in our own lives. We need not to, um, to, to minimize its impact and its ability to transform people. You know, the Bible is a powerful book and, and its words have amazing power. And that's been witnessed throughout generations, throughout culture, uh, throughout time. And, and, and I think the poetry is, is, is part of that, of that power and that strength. And we know it implicitly and explicitly because we hear it in our own media-saturated culture all the time. Hmm. You just say a thing enough, then you will come to believe it and people will come to believe it. And we see it and we hear it over and over and over. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is right. This is right. Whatever the case may be. And so how much more important to take the words of the Lord and to say them and say them and say them, not just read them silently, but to say them aloud. And like Chip was saying, not only our words. But the actual words of the Lord that we have here, until we come to believe them and others believe them as well. Well, Dr. Chipardi and Matthew Mullins, thank you so much for your wisdom and guidance. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 